It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by historian and author of the new book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison, Hugh Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back on. I'm really excited to join you again. This is so exciting because you you were one of our first guests in the first iteration of Signal Boost when we were just a weekly show and you had put out um, a a history. When Brooklyn was queer, my history of Brooklyn, my first book. Yes. Which, like, I love the story of that book. I think I tell that all the time, that you you were looking for a queer history of Brooklyn in order to write something else, realized that there had not been a queer history of Brooklyn written, and so spent the next six years of your life just doing that. Yeah, it was like cool. walking up to the library shelf and being like, it should be here. Oh, maybe I should be the one to write yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love the way you approached it because, you know, you're a white guy and the queer history of Brooklyn is not white and, and not terribly male. Even there's lots of interesting parts that have nothing to do with your identities. And you like you mm-hmm. took on that project with such compassion and empathy and thoughtfulness. And and the fact that, like, you're the one to write this next book. I was like, all right, if a white guy is going to do this. I'm glad it's you. <laughs> so, so, so set it, set it up. Like, when did you, when did you become interested in the women's house of detention? Where was it? You know, How should we all it, know it's about it? Funny. I should have known about this long before because this building dominated Greenwich Village for yes. most of the 20th century. I used century. to eat lunch there. I had no idea until <laughs> you Sorry, keep going. Yeah, it's fascinating. I didn't know either. There's a garden and a library there. They mm-hmm. were all part of this complex and I hang out there and I had no idea. But when I was writing When Brooklyn Was Queer, one of the things I knew and I really needed to put in the book was that prisons are queer spaces. They just are over and over again. The police target queer people. Prisons are single sex institutions. For all of these reasons, queer people often end up in prisons and queer records are often created by prisons. So that was in my mind. But there were a couple little details that came across my desk as I was working on other projects that started to make me think about this. Uh, One was I met an author named Lisa Davis, who's a really fantastic writer and historian. And she said to me one day, you know, there are all these queer neighborhoods in New York, but only Greenwich Village really had bars for lesbians. I don't know why that is. And I was like, Uh. that is an interesting question. Why were the women in the village and the boys everywhere else? So that was in my mind. Then I met another activist named Jay Toole, who's with Queers for Economic Justice. She's a fantastic queer anti-poverty activist. And she took me on a tour of the West Village where she told me about her history, having been incarcerated in the Women's House of Detention. And that's when I first started to think about, oh my God, there was a 12-story maximum security prison in Greenwich Village that we never talk about. That neighborhood where all the lesbian bars were. And she said to me, there were so many queer women in the prison. We couldn't even count them. They couldn't segregate us. There were too many of us. And so things started to kind of knit together for me in that moment. And then the one that really like shocked me, that just knocked the wind out of my sails and said, this is the project you've got to work on, was a study from the Williams Institute that found that 
40% of people incarcerated in women's prisons identify somewhere under the LGBTQ umbrella. When I read that 40%. in your book, I literally, I put the book down and I said to like everybody sitting in the room with me, I was like, hang on, did you all know? <laughs> right. right. It was one of the 40% of incarcerated women identify somewhere on the LGBT spectrum. 40%. I, I just, how are we not talking about this crisis of incarceration all the time? And of course, some people are. But the mainstream conversation of queer history, of Greenwich Village history, of New York City history leaves these people out. Yeah. And that's I, where I knew I needed to start my book. I mean, it feels to me like, you know, that's the kind of stat that makes my brain go, oh, we're criminalizing <laughs> certain mm -hmm. people for their identities um, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, because of people's identities, they have... Um, you know, challenges um, and, and struggles with poverty and um, mm -hmm. being unhoused. I mean, there's just law so many, you're right. That's there, but, but a lot of um, their, their interactions with law enforcement are a result of the other, the other issues structurally um, that you have to deal with. I mean, do you feel like the systems that we talk about in the context, I mean, Let's get intersectional for a second. We usually talk about it just mm -hmm. in the context of like black people um, um, or, or Latinx people. But but let's sort of get intersectional about it and and, mm -hmm. and focus on the fact that the same systemic reasons why, um, you know, poverty is an issue for certain communities is is actually the catalyst to 40 percent um, of absolutely people who are incarcerated identifying. Um, under this under the spectrum, right? I mean, it's connected. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, absolutely. This is an intersectional issue and cannot make any sense any other way. Not only are these oftentimes like what you might call, if you call them crimes at all, which I, I do not yeah, like that lingo, but that. survival mm -hmm. crimes, um, you know, it's, it's about surviving. It's, you know, people being incarcerated for something like stealing $10 worth of groceries and then not being able to pay a $50 bail. So they're in this, you know, maximum security prison for months at a time. So there's that aspect of it. Then, of course, there's the aspect that uh, black and brown women are targeted much more by the police, obviously, over and over again. So that brings another intersectional layer to this. And then the thing that I discovered that I just didn't know is when you dig into the history of, of you know, women's incarceration specifically, you see that like post-Civil War, we before the Civil War, we had a system of incarceration that was mainly about dealing with the violent antisocial acts of white men. And as more and more uh, Black Americans of all genders and women of all races entered the public sphere after uh, the Civil War, that system becomes one of social control. So before we talk about the women's justice system, the system that existed punished crimes against people like, arson, uh, like uh, murder and crimes against property like arson. But women... Yeah. And the whole system we get after the 1870s is about published, punishing crimes against the public order. So like mm. drunkenness, <laughs> prostitution, yep. drug yep. use, and poverty. Those things weren't considered crimes in the same way. And people certainly weren't incarcerated for them. Only women got punished for those things. It's a specific system set up to target women who are improperly feminine. <laughs> so I was having a hard time reading this book and keeping my brain in the decades that you're actually writing about the, the, the House of Detention stood from the 20s to the 70s. 
and and my brain is, I'm just I'm so firmly rooted in where we are right now that like reading reading your description of these quote unquote crimes that the women were were pulled in on largely prostitution it was from your book that I learned that there was no legal definition of prostitution it was anything the law wanted it to be including like lots of behaviors I engage in regularly like wearing pants um, <laughs> yeah the like, common I, like, lewdness of women exactly like if, if I was out talking too loud on a sidewalk you know at night without a man I would have been mm -hmm. arrested for prostitution legally that would have been the definition of how they arrested me I would have been on the books as a as an arrested prostitute um, mm -hmm. Just for like speaking too loudly in uh, the presence of somebody who didn't like that. Um, yep. And then so you learned, might have spent three years in jail. Because I couldn't make bail. So so I'm, I'm reading this thinking about the laws that are currently, that Republicans are currently attempting to pass to police gender. Like saying that if, it, you know, teachers need to report if they see children who are uh, using a gender expression that they don't feel is correct. Like, uh, and that's so vague that it could be wearing pants. Like, yeah, this is not ancient. Can you talk a little bit about how like recent this history is and, and whether, whether you think it's possible that we can, you know, we still have that DNA. Are we still, are we still capable of doing that? Oh, I think absolutely. You know, it's funny. I was listening to what you two were talking about right before I came on and, and talking about systems that don't work, things that we need to investigate the roots of. And I think our justice system, quote unquote, our criminal legal system, let's mm -hmm. call it, is absolutely one of those, right? This is not a system set up for success for people, right? right. It's a system set up for punishment, which has very little, absolutely nothing really to do with justice. Uh, and it's a system that simply keeps growing. We live in the age of mass incarceration. One of the things I quickly learned looking at this history is, is you're right. We write these awful laws all the time. And then they hang out on books forever. Yes. The uh, anti-masquerade laws that people got arrested for during Occupy Wall Street are the same laws that people got arrested for dressing in drag in the 30s, the wow. 20s, the 1890s, right? These laws hang out forever. But also, the police don't need a specific law to arrest someone they don't like. I mean, right, that's definitely what this taught me. Uh, I, before I wrote this book, thought that prisons and police systems were bad and needed to be reformed. And now I am 100% on an abolition, abolition side of things. I do not <laughs> think this can be reformed, right? The root is poisoned. And if we just sort of prune it a little bit, what's going to grow back is going to be just as bad. You look at prison history and it's like these cycles of reform and then people stop paying attention and it goes right back to being as bad as it was, except usually bigger, right? That's the only right. reform we understand in prisons. Pump more, more prisons. money in, build more cages. I mean, and I, it's still to this day. I, I love that you, you're like, no, no, actually, when you do more research, you come around and you end up as an abolitionist because that's, that's just like the most common conversation I have. <laughs> oh, people, my God. Yes. Like, it's like, oh, I you... feel like my eyes were open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, I, I went in being like, I think we might be able to reform some systems. And then you get in there and you're like abolition nope. it's like it's like the healthcare industry it's like <laughs> you know you're like well maybe we you know public option seems like a good fit you know we'll try for that and you'll try to expand it later you know, incremental you got to be slow with it then you have a family member in the hospital and you have to deal with an insurance company and you're like medicare for all just like burn <laughs> yeah. it down you know <laughs> so i understand and yeah, you know, I understand. it's like i see all the people who've been saying this for decades so that makes me feel even dumber you know it's like you right. read angela davis and you're like oh i, I should have known this 
I should have known this like 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I read no, her. I read it's her. True. I believe her. I understand her. And still, like, it's it, well, it's hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around a system that that is so cruel on purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think the the thing that the thing that I that I've taken from from this book that I I truly did not understand is that the women's prison system is not a smaller version of the men's prison system. It actually serves a completely different function in society. And I yeah, found it really, that to be absolutely fascinating. It, it exists to punish women for being improperly feminine, which of mm. course means queer women and trans masculine people are constantly being caught up right. in it. And then on top of that, like all prisons, it exists to punish people who are poor, people of color, people who have chemical addictions or mental health issues. These, this system, the prison, especially for working class people, takes the place of mental health care, physical health care, of social services, of housing. I mean, and you look at this and I would just see women being arrested for, like you said, being out on the street, smoking, sending the word lesbian through the mail for actual <laughs> prostitution, for stealing groceries. And these people would end up incarcerated sometimes for life. It's insane. Yeah. And the fact that it was in, like for, for non-New Yorkers listening, like Greenwich Village is Tony. Like it is rich. Mm -hmm. That is where NYU lives. <laughs> like that yeah. is like it's it, it is, you know, it, it when when we were growing up in the city in the 80s and, and, and 90s, it was it was an affordable, interesting area. And and at this point, it has been gentrified so beyond recognition. Like there is zero hope of ever living in Greenwich Village, even if that was your home neighborhood. Um yeah. the and when we talk that, about why we don't oh sorry. No, no. no, just the fact that this structure stood there, right? I I find real like it like, like yes, Stonewall is also in the Greenwich in, in Greenwich Village, but but this structure was there for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. And Stonewall and the prison were 500 feet apart. During the Stonewall <laughs> riots, the women in the prison held a riot all their own. They set fire to their belongings and threw them out the windows while chanting gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. Where is we that don't talk in the, about where that. Is the talk movie? About <laughs> where is that in the movie? I didn't see it in right? the movie. The movie was about the white guy from the Midwest. <laughs> oh my god yes and and in like 2011 the new york times has the gall to write that stonewall was all men and then issue a correction saying there was at least one lesbian involved oh, what? oh my god lesbian. were they talking about marcia p johnson or sylvia rivera <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy I can it's name just, you're like, oh, it's so bad you're like how can this be but you know going back to what you're saying about the change in greenwich village i do think so this particular prison closes in the 1970s, right as we kick off our like, you know, 50 years of mass incarceration. And I think that's not coincidental. I think that moving prisons and jails as far away oh. as possible from people who can see mm -hmm. them, protest them, interact with the incarcerated people, making people invisible is what this system does. And it does it by placing them into cages and then placing those cages far away. And then when you oh get out God. of a cage, you are put into a system where you cannot vote, you cannot get licenses, you are followed for the rest of your life by your being incarcerated, making a complete lie of this idea that, you know, once you serve time, you've done your debt to you society. Yeah. It's yeah. it, we had to take this prison and we had to hide it like a like a dog hiding its vomit. Right. We know we should be ashamed of what we are doing in these places. And so we hide them. That is so I want to go back deep for me, because I, I don't know that I. You know, you, you drive yeah. when you're driving in upstate New York or or an area like that. Um, you're awesome. And yeah, I mean, there's a there's a there's a bunch of 
uh, prisons uh, in upstate New York, mm-hmm. where you drive down long, long, you know, roads where there's like just two lanes forever. And then you're like, giant prison, right? And you're like, I didn't even know yeah. this was here. And there's, you know, 50,000 people inside of there. Um, yeah. I, I think that until you just said it, I didn't realize like, no, we would we would That's definitely be protesting a lot mm-hmm. more often if the prison was right in the middle of Manhattan. Yeah. Yep. I yep. remember and in the 90s the seeing the prison buses line up in Columbus Circle to like take people away. And then they did away with mm-hmm. that. Like they mm-hmm. won't even let the buses pick up where people yeah. are going to see the buses picking up friends and family. Um, I yeah. wanted to go back to Angela Davis because the mm-hmm. reason why she is an abolitionist at least as forcefully as she became, was because she spent time in the House of Detention. So She's talk a little bit about that. Because of that time. Because yeah, of the House of Detention, the, yeah. <laughs> she was one of the final folks incarcerated in the prison. Uh, and she says in her autobiography, it was the only time she was ever held with the general population, not specifically sectioned off. And she began to see that prisons, I mean, before that, she definitely had an analysis of prisons as a place that held political prisoners. But while in the House of Detention, she saw the way in which all of these prisoners were political and that these prisons were deeply connected to the state maintenance of systemic racism, systemic misogyny. Uh, they were places where, you know, bail becomes a huge issue, right? Bail is one of those things where when you stop and think about it, it's a way for rich people to get out of prison and poor people to get stuck there. It's yep. not justice in any way. And it's one of the things she talks about in her autobiography quite closely. She becomes one of these integral members in this thing called the Women's Bail Fund, where they worked with women on the outside and women on the inside to create a bail fund that would get people out and then get those people into the movement to help other women get out, right? It's an important uh, social driver of a lot of what happens in the end of the 60s early 70s it's the place where like the gay liberation front meets the black panther party and the young lords and the radical lesbians and the youth against war and fascism and they are all protesting outside this prison because they understand much like we take an intersectional view of liberation that the prison system takes an intersectional view of incarceration and punishment it's the same enemy for all of us (laughs) i mean I like I'm never I don't think I'm ever going to walk through the village the same way nope. after reading this. I, I I truly like I think that I think that my my landscape is permanently altered and it it must be that way for you. Like what is it like to to spend this much time unearthing like your your history? Like 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 the queer history of New York. Like are you will you ever stop? Like what are you doing next? Next, actually, I'm hoping to work on a project about the history of the avant-garde of the Lower East Side. So staying in New York, staying with (laughs) an intersectional history, uh, but maybe something that is not quite as as hard to spend five years reading about as the histories of incarcerated people, which mm. will never stop being part of my work. That is absolutely, I feel that abolition is something that will be in every project that I do from now on. Um, but there is something about spending five years going into the library every day and reading hundreds, if not thousands of pages of social work no- notes with formerly incarcerated people that just got a little hard. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping to move <laughs> to a project that uh, I can take my mind a little bit off of that for a second. Well, the emotional labor is serious, but like you've, you've resurrected women. Like you have, you have resurrected women and transmasculine people and given their stories, like not just to their families, but to the city that like they created, there is no Greenwich Village without oh, these people. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they are the root of the Greenwich Village that we know today. Absolutely, absolutely. And I spent the first year of my research was just simply asking, where can I find their stories as close to being in their own words as possible? Because prisons create data, right? We get numbers about incarcerated people, but we don't get actual thoughts, experience, lives, identities. So yeah, it took me a year just to find the records. And when I finally hit on the idea that social workers keep case notes and they work with people who are in trouble and therefore that they would often work with formerly incarcerated people, that's when I knew I could find these stories and I could tell this book in a way that mattered because the prison doesn't matter, but the right. people that it incarcerated, they changed the world. And they're, they're, like, I, I don't want to say it's a joyful book because it's not, but there is a lot of joy to be found in it. Just like I think there was a lot of joy to be created by the people who were incarcerated in the House of D. The book is The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. Hugh Ryan, thank you for doing what you've done yes, with your life. You it's so really much. rewarding for all of us. <laughs> oh, thank you both for having me on. It was wonderful to chat with you and I love you your show. So thank you. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.